Muy buenos dias y bienvenue. Hi everybody, how's it going? Welcome to D4. This is the show where each week we take a deep dive into one, sometimes two, specific character builds for Dungeons and Dragons 5e. We crunch numbers about them, we theorycraft about them, not with the intent to tell you the right way or the best way to play a character necessarily, but to explore one potential way to build and play a character with the hopes of creating something that is both powerful but also really fun to play. So if you enjoy creating characters for D&D almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on a particular character that you're thinking about playing, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm so glad you're here. My name's Colby, and I'll be your host. So some of you know this. The first character that I ever played in D&D 5e several years ago was a shadow monk. Her name was Ariana, and I loved her with all of my heart. <laughs> I gave her three levels of assassin rogue, so yes, I've been multi-classing since day one, and tried to make her like this amazing, stealthy, scouty ninja who could do, potentially, incredible burst damage when she got surprise on her enemies. <sighs> I kind of miss the naivete of those days in some ways, before I learned how poorly monks scale damage-wise. <laughs> See, in the group of friends that I play with, and I don't think any of them would necessarily disagree with this statement here. I'm kind of the only one who really tries to go all in on optimizing a character. And so, compared to the rest of my party, with maybe the exception of a friend who was playing a barbarian that had the legendary greatsword Hazaron, which is totally overpowered, I did pretty good damage. Stunning Strike could sometimes be a little frustrating in that it rarely seemed to work against the monsters that I really needed it to work on the most, but every once in a while it still would, and that was fun. The larger problem or frustration that I had with the character, honestly, was the relative infrequency with which I could actually surprise my enemies. This was partly due to the aforementioned barbarian constantly going Leroy Jenkins in every combat, and partly due to just how combat often unfolds in D&D without really much of a chance of getting surprised in the first place. Admittedly, the few times that I was able to get surprised, I could be fairly devastating. And that was awesome, but as our campaign progressed into late game, I became pretty disillusioned with the Shadow Monk with three levels of assassin, and convinced Cory, my DM, who you can see be a DM for us in our Tales of Anaria channel, I convinced him to let me like respec my monk, this was pre-Tasha's too, and make her like a way of the open hand monk instead. It was actually a pretty cool like redemption story arc that we came up with to get there, and Though I did lose a little like sustained DPR uh, by missing out on sneak attack, I was pretty happy with the additional like defense and control options that Open Hand gave me, so I had no regrets. Fast forward a few years to today. I've been thinking a lot about that character and about everything that I've kind of learned about 5e mechanics. I kind of wish that I had a time machine and could go back to that bright-eyed newbie version of myself and lend a helping hand. Help me create a character that had at least maybe the foundation of a Shadow Monk, which was what I was really going for, but whose power and like sustained damage and versatility were more in line with what I was kind of hoping and envisioning my character to be. And so, that's my goal for the character that we're doing today build a high sustained DPR shadow monk, or at least a character who, who is in part a shadow monk and has shadow monk as their foundation. The character that I wish Ariana could have been. And then share it with you guys, since I can't share it with my past self. 
And so, I proudly present episode 102, The Master of Shadows. I'm really into shadowy stuff at the moment, aren't I? <laughs> Just Shadow Sorcerer a couple of months ago, Shadow Blade a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, maybe it's the summertime heat that's making me long for darker days. Big thanks to my good friend Randall Hampton for the fantastic artwork that he has created for this character concept that he creates for every character concept that I send him each week. He's a fantastic artist, as you can no doubt tell. If you would be interested in following Randall and or potentially reaching out to him to see if you can commission him for some art of your own character or party, I will, as always, put links in the video description on how to do so. Thanks, Randall. And also, before we jump into the build really quick, I wanted to remind you guys about Hit Point Press and Humblewood Tales, whose Kickstarter ends next week as of when this video is released. So it ends on August 11th. And of course, surprising no one, they totally destroyed their funding goal. So this project is a go. It's greenlit. It's going to be made. And you don't want to miss out on the benefits of backing it before their Kickstarter ends. Humblewood Tales is a companion book to the Humblewood campaign setting for 5th edition, featuring expanded lore around the mystical tree city of Alterheart. The book includes five new Humblewood adventures for levels 3 through 8, where you will encounter pirate mercenaries, face off against a slime king, take on the amaranthine Kren in a nightmarish dreamscape, and so much more. Humblewood Tales is going to be available as a book, a box set, and a Kickstarter exclusive collector's edition. It has over 200 pages of new content that's fully compatible with all of your 5e games, including pre-made characters, a full bestiary, tons of new magic items, and more. So, you know, whether you're familiar with Humblewood and have played in the setting before, or you're just looking to jump into the setting for the first time because it looks fun and cute, because it totally does, it's so adorable, you would be well served by backing this Kickstarter. So, please, check them out. Go to d4.humblewoodtales.com. I'm going to put that link in the video description, of course, and I would appreciate it if you use that link so that they'll know that I sent you. Like I said, they've already reached their funding goal, but they do have some really fantastic stretch goals that are still waiting and available. So go back them, help them hit those stretch goals, and get all the juicy perks and benefits from doing so. Again, you won't regret it. Huge thanks to Hit Point Press. Congrats on getting your project funded. Can't wait to see the results. And let's jump into the build. All right, a level one. For our starting class, we are going to start off this character as a monk. I do want to include like a little caveat here. You know, the reason I didn't call the video the Shadow Monk, as I've sort of hinted at, is that while Shadow Monk is where we're going to start and provides the foundation for the character, by the end of the build, they actually end up with fewer levels in monk than another class. And we'll kind of get into why later. But yes, at level one, we're starting as a monk, so maybe when we first meet our character, they are perhaps studying in a monastery, but maybe it's one that's a little bit less be at one with yourself and inner peace, and a little more mercy does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, sensei. <laughs> Might be kind of that kind of place. I mean, of course, it doesn't have to be like this super mean or aggressive kind of thing. It doesn't have to be Cobra Kai. But it might at least be a place, I think, that teaches their students how to accomplish their goals, and maybe even high-minded goals, but using the arts of subterfuge, stealth, and shadow. As for our race, all monks are mad. Multiple ability score dependent, not angry, though I suppose you could be an angry monk. But the monk that we're building today is especially mad. For that reason, I really wanted to pick a race that gets 
super great ability score bonuses. I'm also interested in being elvish because A, Ariana was, B, I love elves. I'm kind of a cliche D&D fanboy in that sense and see because of a certain feat that I'd like to access later. For all of those reasons, I'm going to suggest that we go half-elf here. Now, Ariana was a wood elf, and I'm partial to wood elves, mostly for story and fantasy lore reasons. And a wood elf half-elf could get a little extra move speed, which is nice, but since monks already get some additional move speed, that might not be super important on this character. Thematically, our best option might be like a drow half-elf, since they kind of love like the darkness and the shadow already, right? And they get access to some cool additional spells, dancing lights, fairy fire, and at character level 5, darkness, which would be nice. But, since I'm building this character to try and maximize damage, I'm instead going to suggest that we take the high elf half elf, or the high half elf, for our subclass, which is actually something that I've never done in a build before. Because high half-elves can forego gaining proficiency in two skills and instead take the high elves weapon training feature, which gives us proficiency in the long and short swords and the long and short bows. Now, monks already have proficiency in the short bow and short sword, but not the longer versions. And we want to use a long sword on this character, as we'll discuss later. Using a different weapon instead, like a quarterstaff, wouldn't be a huge blow to our damage, but I'm trying to eke out every last point of damage possible, so we're going for the longsword. As for our ability scores, I assume that we're going with the point by method as always, and so I'm going to recommend going with a 15 dexterity, taking our plus two bonus there, a 15 charisma, taking our plus one bonus there, a 13 wisdom, and taking an, our second plus one bonus that half elves get there, and a 12 constitution. Like I said, we're super mad, but being a half-elf does help out quite a bit. Now, quickly, starting with the 16 Charisma isn't strictly necessary, but it's nice. If you instead wanted to drop that to a 14 and put more points into either Wisdom or Constitution, I wouldn't blame you. The way I've done it makes us a little squishier, and as we all know, a dead Master of Shadows does zero damage. So yeah, do what you feel you must. I'm prioritizing damage on this character, so we're gonna take Charisma to a 16. I like glass cannons, what can I say? As for our equipment, I'm gonna recommend going the gold buy method as usual and picking up a longsword, and that's really all we need. One great thing about being a monk is you don't really need a lot of equipment. Although we're proficient with that longsword, we won't actually be using it until next level, so maybe grab a quarterstaff or something as well to tide you over. And then, you know, whatever other traveling necessities you might have, or feel free to loan the rest of your money to your favorite party member at a low interest rate. As a monk, at level 1 we get the unarmored defense feature, which tells us that so long as we're not wearing armor or using a shield, our armor class equals our dexterity modifier plus our wisdom modifier, plus 10 of course, which means that we currently have a 15 AC. Not great, but not horrid. And we also get martial arts. With martial arts, we're told that, again, so long as we're not wearing armor or using a shield, and we're wielding only monk weapons, which are short swords and any simple weapon that doesn't have the two-handed or heavy property, more on that in a second, we can use dexterity instead of strength for our attack and damage rolls of our unarmed strikes and our monk weapon attacks, even if the weapon doesn't have the finesse property. Also, we can use a d4 for our unarmed strike damage instead of just one damage plus our modifier, and that scales with monk levels. And when we take the attack action, we can make an unarmed strike as a bonus action. So right off the bat, we can make two attacks per turn and add our dexterity modifier to the damage on both without needing a feat or a fighting style to do it. 
making the monk a fairly solid damage dealer for a level 1 character. Doesn't scale particularly well, but hey. For right now, feels pretty nice. At level 2, we get key, the defining feature of monks that fuels pretty much everything cool or neat that you want to do. We get one key point per monk level, and they reset on a short rest. Most people, I think, would argue that that's not enough, and it's one thing that makes the monk suffer a little bit in power and potency. But anyway, for now, we can use those key points to do three things. Take the dodge action with a bonus action and a key point, disengage or dash with a bonus action and a key point, or use flurry of blows, which lets us make two unarmed strikes as a bonus action when we take the attack action instead of the usual one that we can do by default. Now we're talking. Three attacks in a turn, using our dex modifier for damage on all of them without a feat or a fighting style? Alas. This might be the pinnacle of our career as a monk. <laughs> and we only have two key points, so it's not like it's sustainable or anything. But hey, we are relatively strong at the moment. We also, at monk 2, get the aforementioned increased monk move speed here with the unarmored movement feature. It gives us 10 additional move speed, yes, so long as we're not wearing armor or, we're, or using a shield. And, you know, 40 feet of move speed, nothing to sneeze at. Importantly, as well, thanks to Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, monks get the dedicated weapon feature at level 2, which tells us that at the end of a rest, we can touch a weapon, focus our key, and make that weapon a monk weapon so long as we are proficient with it and it doesn't have the heavy or special properties. Thus, since we're proficient with longswords and they are neither heavy nor special, just versatile, we can use a longsword as a monk weapon. And since it is versatile, we can use two hands to make an attack with it, letting our damage die for that attack be a d10. There's no prohibition against using two hands to make an attack. It just can't be listed as a two-handed weapon. Admittedly, for me, whenever I play a monk, I really like to pretend that all of my attacks are made with my hands and feet and knees and elbow, etc. My body is a weapon. So I always ask my DM if I can just like reflavor the longsword or a quarterstaff or whatever I'm using as like some brass knuckles or something. But that's my flavor in fantasy. Am I alone here? Do you guys like to envision your monks using actual weapons in combat or is it just me? At level three. We get Deflect Missiles, which tells us that when we're hit by a ranged weapon attack, we can use our reaction to deflect or catch the missile, reducing the damage by a d10, plus our dex modifier, plus our monk level, which should reduce most ranged weapon attacks to nothing at this level. And that's both super cool and really cinematic. And pretty situationally strong. If you do reduce the damage to zero, you can spend a key point to redirect the missile to another creature, essentially making a ranged weapon attack with it as though it were a monk weapon. And then at level three, we also of course get our monk subclass, our monastic tradition, and we, as I've said, are going with the way of shadow. I really, really love the flavor and feel of this subclass. And since I've actually only ever used them in one build before, uh, the Anti-Mage, and I didn't do this then, I'm gonna read what Wizards of the Coast has to say about the Shadow Monk. Monks of the Way of Shadow follow a tradition that values stealth and subterfuge. These monks might be called ninjas or shadow dancers, and they serve as spies and assassins. Sometimes the members of a ninja monastery are family members, forming a clan sworn to secrecy about their arts and missions. Other monasteries are more like thieves' guilds, hiring out their services to nobles, rich merchants, or anyone else who can pay their fees. Regardless of their methods, the heads of these monasteries expect the unquestioning obedience of their students. Hmm. That sets a good tone. So, 
as a shadow monk, we get the shadow arts feature, which tells us that as an action, we can spend two of our very precious three currently key points to cast a few spells. Dark vision, pass without trace, silence, and darkness. These are all pretty good spells, situationally anyway. And since we get our key points back on a short rest, not a horrible use of our key if the situation calls for it. We also do learn the minor illusion cantrip here as well. At level four, we get one of my very favorite monkish abilities for the coolness and flavor factor anyway, slow fall. This tells us that when we fall, we can reduce the damage we take, which is normally a d6 for every 10 feet that we fall, right? By five times our monk level or 20 damage at this level, which should let us fall from 50 or 60 feet on average before taking any damage. And that's just cool. Go jump off some five-story buildings. Yes, for fun. We also get our first ability score increase or feat, and yeah, you saw this coming, I want elven accuracy. It lets us bump, in our case, our dexterity by one, giving us an 18 now, which feels great, but also tells us that if we have advantage when we make an attack with dexterity or intelligence or wisdom or charisma, we essentially get to roll three d20s instead of two. Now, we don't currently have anything that gives us reliable advantage. I'm seriously, seriously hoping that you have a party member who's regularly casting fairy fire or knocking enemies prone or doing something else to give you advantage. But there will be things that we do later on with this character to give ourselves advantage, at least some of the time. And since it's a half feat and I kind of wanted to go half elf anyway for the ability score increases, it really feels to me like a perfect fit here. At level five, we get extra attack. And so that means, yeah, we now get two attacks with our action and two more attacks with our bonus action so long as we have the key for it. And four attacks on a turn at level five is really quite good. More attacks than any character can do outside of a level 11 fighter who has a weaponized bonus action or action surge up, I suppose. I might have lied when I said that level two was the pinnacle of our career. It might be level five, especially because we also get the sometimes awesome, sometimes really disappointing stunning strike here. This tells us that if we hit with a melee weapon attack, and yes, unarmed strikes can count for this purpose, look it up in the Sage Advice Compendium if you need to, you can spend a key point to try and stun your target, forcing them to make a constitution saving throw against your wisdom-based DC. And that's a fairly humble 13 DC right now. Or they are stunned until the end of your next turn. I've tried to build a character specifically to try and take as much advantage of this potentially powerful feature here, the, uh, the re-roller or fate weaver, but on this character, where we're not prioritizing wisdom, and considering that constitution saves are typically the strongest saves for most enemies in D&D 5e, I just don't think I would really plan on using this feature all that often, unless you felt really confident that your enemy had a low plus to con save, or maybe you prioritized wisdom over charisma, or you had a friend with the silvery barb spell available or bane active or something, right? Importantly as well, at level five here, our unarmed strikes scale up to a 1d6. But at level six, with our extra attack secured and a little scaling on our unarmed strike as well and a few key points under our belt, I think it's time to take levels in a different class. See, our shadow monk has come upon an artifact, maybe a ring, or an urn, or a statue, or perhaps even, yes, a magic lamp. Was this artifact in the halls of your monastery, revered by those who follow the way of shadow? <gasps> the legendary urn of whispering warriors. Someone broke that. <laughs> Did you stumble upon it during one of your adventures? 
Was it given to you by a friend or a family member, perhaps even passed down to you as an heirloom, and you've been carrying it with you all this time? I don't know, but there is an otherworldly being tied to this artifact, and at this point in our character's career, that otherworldly being has reached out to us. Or perhaps we reached out to them. With an offer of additional power to help us complete whatever great task lies in front of us, if we will but pledge our service to them, because yes, whatever your reasons, we are going to become a genie warlock at this level. And yeah, right at level one, warlocks get their subclass, their otherworldly patron, we're going genie, but to be honest, I don't feel super strong about the otherworldly patron here that you take at warlock level one for your subclass. I think it's the best. I think it's the most powerful. It's going to do a lot for us. There's some really fantastic features, but you could totally go fiend or undead or archfey if you prefer. I think we'd get a little less damage and I don't think the abilities that those subclasses get are as good, but I'm more here for the spells than anything. And Genie is probably my favorite Warlock subclass, I think, personally, despite the fact that I might have used Hexblade a tad bit more, just a tad. But yeah, the additional damage that Genie Warlock provides isn't anything monumental. So first up, as a Genie Warlock, we have to choose our Genie kind. And yeah, I'm gonna recommend, as I usually do, going with the Tao, which is affiliated with the Element of Earth. Again, this I don't think is super important necessarily, so if you'd rather go with a Genie or a Freedy or Marid, Marid, Marid? Mm, I don't know. Uh, go ahead. You do get access to some additional spells based on which kind you choose, but I'm not actually planning on making use of any of them in combat, really. What I do care a little bit more about here comes from the Genie's Vessel feature, which tells us that once per turn, when you hit with an attack roll, you can deal additional damage equal to your proficiency bonus, and the damage type is associated with our Genie kind. Dao gets to do bludgeoning damage here, and magical bludgeoning damage is much less often resisted by enemies than thunder, fire, or cold damage, and there's less immunity to it as well. Also, with Genie's Vessel, we can magically vanish into our vessel once per long rest for a number of hours equal to twice our proficiency bonus. It's a 20 by 20 cylinder inside, meaning you can store all kinds of stuff in there, sort of like a free bag of holding, but that you can only access once per day. And it's a nice place for a short rest for us currently, as well as just cool. We also get spells at Warlock 1, of course, and while yeah, I'd probably take Eldritch Blast because you're a warlock, and it's a decent ranged attack option when we need it, and maybe Armor of Agathus because you're a warlock, and it's a nice defensive option that doesn't require concentration. The one that I'd for sure pick up here and use in combat would be Hex. Hex can be a really great spell, and the more attacks you make with it, the stronger it becomes. So it's really pretty good for a monk who can be potentially making four attacks on a turn. It does require a concentration. It takes a bonus action to cast and then transfer to another target when your existing hexed target dies, right? That's a bit of a bummer, but we cast it on an enemy and thereafter all attacks we make against them do an extra d6 of damage. You can also, with Hex, choose an ability score that your hexed target is going to then have disadvantage on ability checks with. Alas, it's not saving throws. If it were, the spell would be overpowered. But this can help your allies make grapple or shove attacks against them if you choose strength, right? Or make their counter spells less effective if they're a spellcaster and you choose their spellcasting ability, etc. All right, 
At level 6, it's time for our first damage report, and let's discuss what combat looks for us right now. It's pretty straightforward. I'm assuming that on round 1, we'd cast Hex on our enemy with our bonus action, then make a couple of longsword attacks. If the enemy is likely to die before your next turn, don't bother with Hex. But, assuming that they're a tougher target, this means that on round 2, we'd make two longsword attacks and then two unarmed strikes against them with a key point meaning that we would do 2d10 plus 6d6 plus 19 thanks to our dex modifier and our genie's wrath that we get once per turn that's of course the total if all four of our attacks were to land and that's pretty nice when your target dies use a bonus action to transfer hex to the next target unless they're all super squishy right and just continue pummeling yeah it's a bummer to constantly be using your bonus action to transfer that hex but considering that we only have five key points at the moment anyway we're unlikely to be able to use flurry of blows every single turn for combat regardless unless you tend to get a short rest after every combat encounter at your table so i don't feel too bad about giving up that bonus action the best thing in the world right now for this character would be to have advantage somehow especially since we have elven accuracy so we're going to work on that later. Here's hoping that one of your allies is doing something to give you advantage. Assuming that we don't, but then attacking as per everything that I've just said against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average do 48 damage per round. And against an enemy with a 15 armor class, it would be 36 DPR. And that's pretty solid damage. It puts us like middle of the pack of tier one compared to other sustained DPR builds that I've done to date. Check the video description to see those graphs and spreadsheets. Now granted, this damage comes with a couple of grains of salt in that you only have one warlock spell slot currently. Even though it also resets on a short rest, you're often giving up your bonus action to transfer hex and you only have five key points. I feel confident that you could do this damage for say an entire combat encounter versus like a big bad, a boss fight. And that has been like my minimum requirement for other sustained DPR builds. But yeah, it is a little less sustainable than other builds, no question. But also that said, to be fair, plenty of my sustained DPR our builds come with grains of salt so i'm not gonna lose a lot of sleep over this when i haven't lost much sleep for others that function similarly right at level seven we would be a warlock two and we get first up our second spell slot per short rest that's really nice and of course warlock invocations and i love warlock invocations we get two for now and i think i'd probably take eldritch mind which gives us advantage on our concentration checks and you know since we don't have constitution saving throw proficiency this is going to be a nice help when we are concentrating on spells which will probably be most of the time, so long as we have the spell slots for it. I'd also grab Devil's Sight here, which lets us see even in magical darkness. And as a Master of Shadows, being able to see in any kind of darkness felt super important to me, but also we will make use of this tactically because yes, at level eight, we'd be a Warlock three, and that means we get second level Warlock spells. And while I'd be sure to grab like Misty Step and maybe Hold Person, the one that I would plan on using in combat sometimes is going to be the Darkness spell. Now, yes, we did have access to this spell as a Shadow Monk at level three with use of our key points. And so we could have started using this tactic that I'm about to discuss last level once we got Devil Sight, if we had the key points to spend. Anyway, you're familiar with this tactic and it's not without its drawbacks, but yes, with Darkness, you cast the spell as an action and then magical darkness radiates 15 feet in every direction from the point that you cast it on. I typically like to cast it on my person or something that I'm wearing. And then so long as enemies can't see in that magical darkness, most of them won't be able to. And since we can, thanks to Devil's Sight, we'd have advantage on our attacks against them and they'd have disadvantage on attacks against us. Now, 
This, of course, can present problems for not only your enemies, but also your allies in combat. So you're definitely going to want to use this tactic with caution. Talk about it with your party members. Because, yeah, anything that your friends are trying to do that require them to see their target, most commonly spells, but there are plenty of other things as well, they won't be able to do if the target is in your bubble of darkness and they don't also have devil sight or something else that would let them see, right? This might even include healing you or buffing you. Now, the good news is, if your ally tries to attack an enemy in the darkness, they should be able to do so without disadvantage, since the enemy can't see them either, and thus they'd have advantage on the attack, but since they can't see the enemy, they'd have disadvantage, those things cancel each other out, and they would just make the attack as normal. Still, I don't really love relying on this tactic a lot. Having played a character in game who did for several levels, you know, after a few levels, I started getting really hungry for a different way to get advantage every turn. It's effective, but it can be annoying, both for your allies, but also for your DM. And also, here's the thing, the damage that we get from using Hex as our concentration actually makes Hex a better spell, at least at lower to middling enemy armor classes. So when I crunch numbers going forward, I'm actually going to assume that we are using Hex at lower ACs and then switching to Darkness at higher enemy ACs for advantage once the benefit from advantage outweighs the extra damage from Hex. And I'm going to indicate on the spreadsheet with a purple shaded cell at which point you'd want to swap. Of course, I fully appreciate that you're very often not going to know what the enemy AC is when a fight breaks out, but I feel like we often have a decent idea, especially if you've been playing D&D for a while. But, you know, if you're not really sure, I might play it safe and go the darkness route since that does nice things for our own survivability as well, so long as that's not going to cause too much groaning from everyone else at our table. And of course, if it does, just sticking with Hex will be fine. Also, at Warlock 3, we get our Pact Boon. And I'm gonna recommend that we go Pact of the Chain here. It's really nice in that it lets you learn the wizard's Find Familiar spell and then cast it as a ritual, even letting the familiar you summon take an improved form, that of an imp, pseudo-dragon, quasit, or sprite. I would probably go with any but the pseudo-dragon, as the rest of them can turn invisible until they attack. And yes, the familiar tactic with familiars <laughs> is to have them take the help action and thereby give you advantage on one of your attacks against your enemy. And if your familiar can be invisible and stay invisible, since they're just helping, not attacking, it greatly increases their chances of staying alive, even against mean DMs. And yeah, it's going to be really nice to have advantage on at least one attack now, making Hex sort of that much more valuable versus Darkness. Right? At level 9, we would be a Warlock 4, and that means another ability score increase for feet. And yeah, I'm going to bump decks, cap it at 20. It improves our attacks, our armor class, our initiative, our saving throws, and a bunch of great skills. To me, it's a no-brainer. But for our level 9 damage report then, things have changed a little bit since last check. We're now using either our familiar on one of our attacks per turn, or darkness on every turn for elven accuracy super advantage against higher enemy armor classes anyway with darkness and we've capped our dexterity score to make us as agile as we can possibly be and thus against an enemy with a 10 armor class we would do 57 damage per round and against an enemy with a 16 armor class it would be 47 dpr compared to other dpr builds that i've done to date at this level we've slipped a little bit now we're more kind of in the range of lower tier one upper tier two and to be honest with you, that's a little better than I thought we'd be, so I'm feeling pretty good. We are still mostly a monk after all. Just in case you're curious, you would be better off with Darkness versus Hex at an enemy AC of 19 and higher. So yeah, 
do your best to size up your enemy at the beginning of combat and make an educated guess as to which spell you should be using. At level 10, I really want to grab just one more level of monk here. We'd be a monk six for this character, I think. And I think now is probably that time to grab it. The biggest problem that monks have is just their poor scaling past level five, I think. They're kind of like barbarians in this regard. But unfortunately, because so much of what they do relies on key, and you only get one key point per monk level, you sort of feel chained to the class if you want to reliably use your features. With this character, since we're really only using key for flurry of blows and because they reset on a short rest, I don't feel too terrible about only winding up with six of them because we're gonna stop monk levels here. But obviously you might wanna adjust that, especially if you tend to have a lot of combat encounters between short rests at your table. But anyway, as a monk six, we get key empowered strikes. This makes our unarmed strikes magical for the purpose of overcoming enemy resistance to non-magical attacks, right? And yeah, if you need this sooner because you're running into this at your table a lot, go ahead and grab it earlier. I am really hoping that you can find a magic item that will make your unarmed strikes both magical and more powerful, but yeah, do what you gotta do. We also, at level six, get shadow step and i just really couldn't imagine being like a master of shadows without this ability it's my favorite shadow monk ability i think so with shadow step when you're in dim light or darkness as a bonus action you can teleport up to 60 feet to an unoccupied space you can see that's also in dim light or darkness after that the next attack that you make on this turn is made with advantage now admittedly this doesn't do a ton for our sustained DPR, or at least it's not gonna show up on the spreadsheet, but it's just so cool and flavorful. It makes me feel like Nightcrawler, just bamfing all over the battlefield, right? Especially because we probably have Misty Step now too. Now, there's no limit to how often you can use Shadow Step, which is awesome. You're just limited by the lighting. And yeah, there is some nice synergy here with Darkness and Devil Sight too, right? I mean, maybe there's a patch of dim light close to where you're standing, but the area that you want to get to is covered in bright light, or vice versa. Just cast Darkness on the brightly lit area and bamf away. And yeah, if you have Misty Step and a spell slot, you could use that instead, but it only has a 30-foot range, and you might want to be casting Darkness anyway to give yourself advantage on your attacks, etc., right? So this could be a more spell slot efficient way to accomplish that. And it's just so fun and cool, and just makes me feel like a true Master of Shadows. But yeah, at level 11, I think I'm going back to Warlock and just staying there for the rest of this character's career. I'm mostly doing it for the better spells and spell slots, as we'll get into, but there are some other nice Warlocky benefits that we get along the way, too. So as a Warlock 5, we get our third invocation. There are a lot of good ones. Things to buff your familiar, ways to buff yourself. Thematically, one with shadows is definitely worth considering, if for no other reason than it says shadows in the name. But it would just let you go invisible if you're in dim light or darkness, but then it cancels as soon as you move, take an action, or a reaction. So it's not super useful. I think if it were me, I would actually take Cloak of Flies here. I kind of love this invocation. And especially for this build, actually. As a bonus action, you surround yourself with a magical aura that looks like a swarm of flies. It feels pretty dark and thematic, and I don't know why you couldn't just like flavor it as swirling shadows or something instead of flies as long as your DM's okay with it. It would then give you advantage on intimidation checks, but then disadvantage on other charisma checks. And then if any creature, including allies, so be careful, starts their turn within five feet of you, they take 
poison damage equal to your charisma modifier. It lasts until you're incapacitated or you dismiss it, but you can only use it once per short or long rest, so don't dismiss it unless you're confident that you're not going to need it for combat encounters. So yes, this will give us an extra 3 damage per turn, and more if there are multiple enemies close to us, right? But of course less if those enemies are resistant or immune to poison damage. So yeah, not a huge damage increase, but not nothing. And like I say, I just think it's super cool and flavorful for this character. We also get third level spells here, and yeah, counterspell, dispel magic, fear, fly, hypnotic pattern, etc, etc, lots of good ones, but there are two that I want to highlight here that I would plan on using going forward to replace the other two spells that we've potentially been using our concentration for, Hex and Darkness, right? And they are Spirit Shroud and Summon Fae. Spirit Shroud is easy. It's sort of a souped-up hex, right? You cast it again with a bonus action, use your concentration, but then going forward, any attack you make against a target within 10 feet of you takes an extra d8 of damage. It's cold, necrotic, or radiant. You choose when you cast the spell. That's really nice, but then you get the added benefits, too, of a creature you hit not being able to heal until your next turn, and any creature within 10 feet of you of your choice has their move speed reduced by 10 feet. Best of all, this spell scales by another d8 of damage for every two levels higher you upcast it. So, you know, not until a fifth level spell currently. There's a nice little damage bump. It brings some added debuffing, and best of all, is cast on ourselves, not our target, meaning we just do that extra damage to anything we hit without needing to use a bonus action to transfer it to another target, right? I love, love, love this spell. But, okay, what's the deal with summon Fey to replace darkness? Well... With Summon Fey, my very favorite summoning spell, you get a small Fey spirit that obeys your verbal commands, no action required by you, that can make a decently damaging weapon attack. It's 2d6 plus 6 currently, not bad. Now, their plus to hit is unfortunately based on your spellcasting ability, not your dex modifier or anything, which is kind of a bummer, but at least our charisma is a 16, so it's not horrible. But best of all, when you summon the Fey, you choose their mood, fuming, mirthful, or Trixie. And then as a bonus action, your Fae can teleport 30 feet, and then if you pick Trixie for the mood, at least, they can fill a 5-foot cube within 5 feet of them with, yep, magical darkness, which lasts until the end of their next turn. Now, there is some potential complexity to the timing of how this all might work, rules as written. Unfortunately, the Fae Spirit shares your initiative, but they take their turn immediately after yours. Meaning that the enemy they covered in Magical Darkness might simply just move out of it before you get a chance to attack them with your super advantage, thanks to Devil Sight and Elven Accuracy. If you can, convince your DM to let the Fae, you know, share your initiative, but go right before you if you want. That's the easiest and best solution to this potential problem. If you can convince them to let your Fae use the ready action to ready a bonus action instead of their action, then, you know, they could make an attack and, like, ready their face step darkness combo to be used, like, right before your next turn or something. Neither of these work rules is written. So for the rest of us, we just need to have the Fey Spirit put the darkness on our current target that we're standing next to, right? And hope that the target decides to stay put rather than move away from us, you know, triggering a super advantage opportunity attack from us if they did. Regardless of how it ends up working, it's 
pretty good for us. But yeah, ideally you'd get a full round of combat against that creature in the darkness. That's what I'm going to assume going forward when I crunch numbers, appreciating that that's a best case scenario that might not always work perfectly every time. Partly, of course, because the enemy might be large sized or greater, right? In which case a five foot cube of darkness might not effectively blind them. Unless the Fae can just like cast it on their, around their head or something like that. But then maybe they could just I don't know. Regardless, I love this spell because we get an adorable Trixie spirit that does damage and can still potentially let us use the Darkness Devil Sight tactic without screwing up the battlefield for everyone else. If you're fighting a large creature with a super high armor class, we could always still pull out just the Darkness spell if need be. And so yeah, it's nice to have options. At level 12, we would be a Warlock 6, and, and that means as a Genie Warlock, we get Elemental Gift. And man, Genie Warlocks truly are amazing. Elemental Gift, such a fantastic feature. First of all, it gives you permanent resistance to a damage type based on your genie kind, and this is the other main reason that I wanted to go Dao, because Dao patrons give us resistance to bludgeoning damage, and in case you didn't know, bludgeoning damage is the most frequent damage type of official monsters in D&D 5e. That alone is fantastic, but wait, there's more. You also get to fly. <laughs> Why the heck didn't we beeline for Warlock 6? I guess you could have, actually. In that case, I would have maybe taken Pact of the Blade so that you could get the Thirsting Blade uh, invocation and still get extra attack at level 5. I do think that starting Monk is stronger overall, but yeah, free flight. Proficiency bonus times per day. As a bonus action, you can give yourself a flying speed of 30 feet that lasts for 10 minutes. Incredible. At level 13, we would be a Warlock 7, and we get our fourth invocation Nothing I'd plan on using to improve our damage necessarily, so PYF, pick your favorite. I mean, Tomb of Levistus, Gift of the Ever-Living Ones, Fiendish Vigor, One with the Shadows, lots of good options. We also do get fourth level spells, and also lots of good options. I think for sure I'd pick up Dimension Door for a big teleport that also lets you bring a friend. But I would also make sure to pick up Shadow of Moil here. Shadow of Moil lets you, with your concentration, cover yourself in flame-like shadows, very thematically fitting, but these shadows cause you to become heavily obscured, which means that you effectively cannot be seen by anything that doesn't have a way to see into heavily obscured areas, meaning we no longer need the darkness spell ever, really, unless we're using it to shadow step, right? Also, with Shadow of Moil, you have resistance to radiant damage, so now resistance to radiant and bludgeoning if we're using the spell, and anything within 10 feet of you that hits you with an attack gets to take 2d8 necrotic damage for their trouble as your shadows lash out at that enemy. Totally awesome. Perhaps most importantly for us at this level, our summoned fae now gets to make two attacks per turn, since they get to make a number of attacks equal to half the spell level at which we cast the spell. And as a warlock, we only have fourth level spell slots, right? This means that we are always going to use our summoned fae even over spirit shroud, at least if the enemy is medium sized or smaller and we can take advantage of that darkness devil sight tactic. For our level 13 damage report then, we've picked up a little extra damage in the form of either spirit shroud versus larger and lower enemy armor class targets, or summon fey if the enemy is like medium size or smaller. I'm going to assume that they are here, of course. And we also got a little bump from cloak of flies, and then just a lot of fun utility, mobility, and defensive options as well. So against an enemy with a 10 armor class here, we would do 74 DPR, and against an enemy with a 17 armor class it would be 71 damage per round 
And just in case you're curious, if you were fighting large creatures or larger and the Trixie phase, darkness wouldn't necessarily give you advantage. The point at which you would use Shadow of Moil instead of Spirit Shroud is an enemy AC of 21 or higher. So almost never really. Although, I mean, we are level 13 now, so maybe it'd be more than I think. Compared to other sustained DPR builds at this level, we're pretty just kind of solidly upper tier two now, which is still super good. And we are chock full of flavor and mobility. At level 14, we would be a Warlock 8 and we get another ability score increase or feat. And I think I would bump Charisma and take it to an 18, but this is far from a no-brainer decision. It's definitely the best way to increase our damage since it helps both our Cloak of Flies and our Summon Phase hit chance, but it's a pretty small bump. And we could definitely benefit from, say, more Wisdom for a better armor class, among other things, or more Constitution for more hit points and better saving throws, of course, or for that matter, even Resilient Constitution for saving throw proficiency and, and thus better concentration checks, right? Since I'm focused on damage, I'm going to go Charisma, but feel free to shore up your defenses if you prefer. At level 15, we'd be a Warlock 9, and we get a fifth invocation. I'm again going to say pick your favorite. I think I might take Ascendant Step at this level, which has a prerequisite of being a ninth level warlock. It lets you cast Levitate on yourself at will without spending a spell slot. And that's not necessarily amazing, but it's pretty cool and will be super useful when you need it. Or even when you don't, just levitate around the battlefield all the time to strike fear into your enemy's heart to give you an added aura of mystery. We also get fifth level spells now. And also, PYF for some really great ones, including Hold Monster and Synaptic Static, but I'm probably using my spell slots in combat here for either Summon Fey or, of course, to cast Spirit Shroud because now Spirit Shroud would bump up to 2d8 damage on every single attack. And yeah, when you're making four attacks in a turn, that's a lot of extra damage. I love it. At level 16, there is an argument to be made here for going back to Monk. First off, you'd get more key points. We could always use more key points. Second, we'd get evasion, which is pretty useful against fireballs and the like. And finally, we'd get another ability score increase or feat when we hit level 17, which is where my build ends, which means a better charisma score for me, and that means more damage. That would actually be a better way to increase our damage than sticking with Warlock. But the damage increase would be so slight that giving up the really amazing things we get by sticking with Warlock just made it too much to sacrifice, even for me, a slave to the spreadsheet. Go ahead, go back to Monk if you really just have to have as much damage as possible and get a couple more key points. But for the rest of us, yeah, we're going to be a Warlock 10 and Genie Warlock level 10 gives us Sanctuary Vessel, and it's just such a fantastic utility and support feature. Now, when you enter your magic lamp or ring, you can take five more friends with you, and if you all stay in there for simply 10 minutes, you all get to enjoy the benefit of a short rest and recover additional hit points if you spend hit dice equal to your proficiency bonus. I mean, for a character who depends so much on short rests, having like a souped up catnap spell once per day for free for your entire party is just so good. And finally, for us, at level 17, we'd be a Warlock 11, and that means we get a third 
spell slot, three fifth level spell slots every short rest. That alone is incredible, but then we also get our first Mystic Arcanum, which means we can cast a sixth level Warlock spell once per day. Keep in mind there's no spell slot that we're using for this, so we can't use it to like upcast summon Fey or anything, which actually bums me out because then our Fey would get three attacks on a turn. But anyway, while there are plenty of great options to choose from here for the Mystic Arcanum, I have a hard time imagining taking anything other than Mass Suggestion, since it doesn't require concentration, but when we cast the spell, any enemy within 60 feet of us who fails their wisdom save against it has to basically do what you tell them to for 24 hours, so long as it sounds reasonable and won't obviously harm them. Having access to this Another spell slot and the Sanctuary Vessel feature just seems so much more powerful to me than a slightly higher Charisma score and a couple of key points, you know? For our final damage report then, our Spirit Shroud has scaled nicely to 2d8, making it a little more competitive versus Summon Fey against even medium-sized creatures and smaller, but that's going to depend on the enemy AC, and I'll indicate in the spreadsheet where you would switch that up. Beyond that, we have increased our charisma just a little bit for more damage, but mostly we've picked up a lot of really great utility and control options since our last check. And so, against an enemy AC of 10, at this level we would do 85 DPR, and against an 18 armor class we would do 74 damage per round on average. And even with 2d8 per hit, you would still only be using Spirit Shroud here, only against enemies with an AC of 15 or lower. After that, you're gonna be better off with your Summon Fey, thanks to the advantage that they give. Of course, if the Darkness tactic isn't going to work against your target because of their size or whatever else, then yeah, I would just use Spirit Shroud and wouldn't even plan on going like Shadow of Moil. Even getting advantage on all of your attacks is never going to compete with an extra 2d8 damage per attack, according to the numbers. And compared to all other sustained DPR builds that I've done to date at this level, we've slipped a skosh again, finding ourselves kind of in the middle to bottom half even of tier two. And so, final thoughts. Our tier score, if you take the damage at every enemy armor class that we calculate for at each of the four damage reports and average them all together, we get a tier score of 57. Putting them like in the upper half of tier 2, just ahead of the Bladesinger Monk and behind the Infiltrator. So super solid damage throughout the character's career and a chance to live our best Shadow Monk-ish genie life? Sign me up. I will say this, if you can have one of your allies again doing something to give this character advantage on every single attack, whether via fairy fire, knocking them prone, or Maybe if you play with flanking rules at your table, that would be a dream come true and would really send your damage consistently into the tier one range. Meaning you wouldn't have to worry about using darkness or whether or not your summon fake and put your enemy into darkness, etc., etc. You just have advantage on every single attack and get to add hex or spirit shroud damage to all of the many attacks that you make every turn and it would be fabulous. But regardless, playing a character who is super slippery and mobile is just so much fun, to me anyway, in-game. And add to that all the fantastic flavor of shrouding yourself and your enemies in darkness and being able to use that darkness to move all over the battlefield. It just adds a fantastic, like, Batman-y flavor to this character and would make them so dang fun to play in-game. I know it because I've done it. Just wasn't as good a version of this character that I did it with. 
this version of the character is a lot closer to what I imagined playing a Shadow Monk would feel like. Not only thematically, but mechanically and like power-wise. I wish I could go back and teach newbie Colby what I've learned, but maybe I'll just have to settle instead for starting a new campaign with Ariana 2.0. But anyway, that's the build for the week, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I did. I also hope you know how much I love you, because I do. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for all that you do, for liking and subscribing and commenting. Huge thanks to my channel members for your support, especially. I hope that you will check out the other content in the channel if you're not in the habit of doing so. I'd like to think there's a lot of great stuff to see. But more importantly, I hope you have a great week and a great day and that you be safe and kind and good and that I see you again very soon. So until then, take care. I think we are in business. It's business time. <laughs> Can't say I was never wrong, but some blame rests on you. Work and play, they're never okay to mix the way we do. All I can say, I shouldn't say. Can we take a ride? Get out of this place while we still have time. I love Jimmy Eat World, and I'm not sorry about it. Hi. <laughs> As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Humblewood Tales is a comp well, don't even say that. Humblewood Tales. Okay. Can you stomp less, please? Somebody want to get the door? <laughs> oh. One day, children will be back in school. That'll be nice. Hi. Well, I'm trying to remember a line from it that I'm trying to that I'm going to be quoting. It's the urn of like oh, something. The legendary urn of whispering warriors, that's what it is. I love Jack Black. Okay, now I need to yeah, I talk again, so. Um, oh boy. What's it called? Uh, and concentration checks, right? Oh, no, say it. Don't, don't say that. Well, don't say that. Well, don't say that. Yeah, I need to say that differently. Well, don't say that. <laughs> um, well, don't say that. Don't say that. Well, don't say that.